Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. New York has the highest number of wrongful convictions in the nation. Currently, the law makes it impossible for innocent people who pleaded guilty and are without the benefit of DNA evidence to challenge their convictions in court. This situation prevents countless people with credible innocence claims from obtaining relief in court. In addition, law enforcement is legally allowed to lie in interrogation about the presence of evidence. This enables coerced and false confessions. This practice has devastating consequences, accounting for 43 innocent New Yorkers who have been exonerated after falsely confessing to serious crimes. 80% of those exonerated are people of color. Several new bills would rectify the situation. S324A and A6570 would end the use of deception in interrogations and help prevent wrongful convictions. A98 and S266, the Challenging Wrongful Convictions Act, would repair the law to enable an authentic legal pathway to exoneration. The bill would allow people without the benefit of DNA evidence in their cases to return to court to prove their innocence. It would also provide a right to post-conviction discovery. Further, it would establish a right to counsel for those with wrongful conviction claims. Another bill, the Youth Right to Remain Silent Bill, would require children to be provided with legal counsel before they are permitted to waive their constitutional right to remain silent. By requiring that a youth consult with an attorney before waiving that right, the bill would ensure that all youth, not just those who can afford a private attorney, would have the true benefit of their constitutional right. Inmates at a prison in Acapulco rioted after dozens of prisoners refused to be transferred to a federal jail, and 20 state police officers were injured trying to restore order. The riot occurred just before the start of the Mexico Open Tennis Tournament, which is supposed to be a showcase for the Pacific Coast Resort. Authorities said some of the injured officers suffered broken bones and head wounds. At Louisiana's Angola prison, staffing shortages are forcing guards to transfer over 600 inmates to a facility north of Lake Charles. Jimmy LeBlanc, Secretary for the Department of Public Safety and Corrections, stated, We are transferring 600 offenders out of the penitentiary to Allen Correctional Center, thereby closing part of the West Yard at the main prison that was built in 1950. Senator Camerson Henry explained that low pay, difficult working conditions, and resulting high turnover rates have exacerbated the staffing shortage. With more than 5,000 inmates, Angola has more than 300 guard positions left unoccupied, meaning that officers supervise up to 200 offenders each night. The Louisiana Department of Public Safety and Corrections is seeking $2 million in funds to move some of the prisoners and make structural improvements at Angola. When the legislative session begins on March 14th, Senator Henry says that they should begin to address some of the concerns. Eric King is an anarchist prisoner who was arrested in September 2014 after he carried out a solidarity action to support the Ferguson Uprising. We speak again today with Lauren Regan, his lawyer, 
about the harsh violence and repression he's faced in prison, culminating in trumped-up charges of assaulting a guard, charges which he just defeated in court. In further retaliation for his recent court victory, he's now being moved to a maximum security facility with only two years left on his sentence. His supporters are requesting that people call the Mid-Atlantic Bureau of Prisons Regional Office and request answers about why he's being punitively transferred. Here is Lauren Regan of the Civil Liberties Defense Center with more on Eric's case and some of his prison experiences. My name is Lauren Regan. I'm the executive director and one of the senior staff attorneys at the Civil Liberties Defense Center. And I guess I'll add that I use she, her pronouns and I'm based in Calapuya territory, which is also known as Eugene, Oregon. Let's start from the beginning, I guess. You know, the, the allegation that formed the basis of this criminal charge happened on August 17th of 2018 um, at the Federal Correctional Institute in Florence, Colorado. And we went to trial in March of 2022. So it literally had been, you know, a little less than four years from the time that this incident happened until the time that Eric finally got a federal jury trial. And in part, that was because of COVID and just the almost complete shutdown of um, the, the court system and especially the jury uh, jury trial system. So this was you know, an unusually long wait uh, for a defendant that is charged with a federal crime. And at the time that Eric was convicted of his underlying offense, he was about 27 years old and at the time that he testified to the jury in court a couple of weeks ago, he was 35. So he had basically served about eight out of 10 of the years that he was sentenced to for his underlying conviction, which was um, a direct action tied to the Ferguson uprisings in Missouri. That's a pretty significant hunk of a human's life, 27 to basically 37. And in 2018, when he was charged with this crime, assault on a federal officer, that charge carries an additional 20 years of prison. So when we took over the case, um, you know, as part of his defense team, it was pretty daunting to think about Eric spending an additional 20 years in prison, in part because the eight years that he has spent in prison has been some of the worst that I've known or heard about, especially in like the activist milieu. You know, I've been a lawyer for almost 25 years. I follow a lot of political activist cases and a lot of folks that end up going to prison, both state and federal uh, time. And obviously like prison is hard on everyone. There is no such thing as a good time in prison or a fun time in prison. But Eric had a lot of just physical brutality leveled against him um, and, you know, almost 1200 days in a segregation cell, you know, at that young stage of his life, it just really 
any of the worst consequences of the federal prison system that could have been leveled at a political activist had been leveled at Eric during that time. So when we first took over the case and started, number one, getting up to speed immediately on the criminal case, and then as we started to get familiar with the details of that criminal case, that's when we immediately put together a federal civil rights lawsuit on his behalf as well. Um, because, you know, in addition to the physical abuse that he endured as part of this criminal charge, which we can talk about a little bit more, he had been diesel therapied and, you know, kind of basically put into various scenarios so that white nationalists and or BOP employees could assault him, you know, or threaten him or other things like that. Like, you know, all of these things had already happened to him by the time I personally met him and heard his full story. And while I was sitting in FCI Englewood, you know, the segregated housing unit has two attorney visiting rooms and they call them the uh, Timothy McVeigh visiting rooms because they were literally constructed when Timothy McVeigh was facing trial for the Oklahoma City bombing scenario. So, you know, I'm sitting on one side of plexiglass in this little tiny room filled with asbestos dust, and he's on the other side of the plexiglass in this segregated housing unit space. And you know, we spent like six hours talking through this entire triggering, traumatizing story that is his time in custody, you know, his time since his arrest. Not to mention that like, you know, his underlying arrest and the prosecution for the underlying case came as a result of a co-conspirator becoming a federal informant. So like literally, if we could think of all of the text you know, textbook worst case scenarios for an activist to endure. He's probably been through about 90% of them, you know, starting with his co-conspirators -co snitching him out to the feds. And that ends up getting him busted. And then he goes to like a private prison while he's awaiting trial. And he takes a deal, um, you know, that results in a 10-year sentence. And he has just done super hard time ever since then. Um, and when we filed the civil rights case on his behalf, you know, shortly after that meeting, I was just mentioning, literally one of my hopes was that the lawsuit would at least shed enough light on him to keep him safe in some regard. You know, that is always like the biggest concern with people on the outside versus people on the inside is like, those of us on the outside are in many ways powerless to help or support or protect the people that are locked, you know, in these cages behind these walls where all of their communications can be cut off. These prison guards and the prison system itself has almost total control and power over the human beings that are, are caged within it. And so we filed that civil rights action, we got that going, and then we just started getting ready for this trial. From the first moments that we had spoken with Eric, he was 
adamant that what he was telling us was the truth. And it was really important, I think, for us to ensure that he knew that we believed him, that no matter what happened in this sometimes broken legal system, um, you know, and in the carceral punishment system, you know, oftentimes people are convicted wrongly. And in this situation, you know, less than 1% of federal prosecutions result in acquittals. And so we knew that the odds of winning were really stacked against us. You know, less than 1% of all cases um, that go to trial are actually, you know, have an acquittal as an outcome. And so we had to keep telling him, like, we'll do everything we possibly can to defend you, to work up this case for trial. You know, we'll do everything we possibly can to create a record in case it needs to go on appeal. And even in the event that we lose and you are found guilty, you know, we just want you to know that we 100% believe you. Uh, we believe, you know, what happened to you was incredibly wrong and illegal. And, you know, we'll continue to help fight with you, um, you know, to try to remedy that situation. And then I think, you know, the other impetus in like investigating this case and working this case up, obviously we heard similar stories from so many other people that are in the Bureau of Prisons custody. And we just sort of realized like, this is obviously a systemic problem and a systemic issue. And, you know, we have plucked this one human being out of this mix to fight for how can we use the time and energy in the legal system to help more people? And we just sort of realized by like exposing the abuse that so clearly goes on within the BOP and the cover-ups that, you know, the fellow, you know, the guards are, you know, this came out at the trial, like the guards are a team and the prisoners are a team. And when a prisoner, um, you know, punches a guard, the guard team will retaliate against the prisoners physically with privileges, with food, you know, however it happens to be, you know, and there was like an expert that we spoke to that said in a poorly managed facility such as FCI Englewood, those tensions are uh, allowed to um, just become higher and higher. You know, they are allowed to go unchecked. And when those tensions go unchecked is where you will see, you know, more and more violence. Um, and so this whole incident on August 17th, 2018, started off with Eric sending an email to his wife. And the email basically was in some ways celebrating the fact that a lieutenant, a guard, had gotten punched earlier in the day. And basically the background story was that a prisoner was seeking protective custody because he was afraid to walk the yard. And he went to the lieutenant's office to ask to be put into segregated housing to be given protective custody. And the lieutenant refused and was going to send him back to the general population. Once a prisoner goes to the lieutenant's office like that, 
most other prisoners will perceive that the person has snitched, um, that they were called down and questioned about a particular incident, or, you know, it's, it's never a good thing to be called down to the principal's office or to the lieutenant's office. And so when a person like this gentleman, um, you know, goes down to the lieutenant's office, asks to be put in protective custody because he's afraid of getting um, you know, assaulted or raped or beaten by other people in the population, other prisoners, and the lieutenant refuses, there is an understanding that the one way that you will guaranteed be sent segregated housing is by attempting to assault the lieutenant. And so that individual basically took a swing at a lieutenant um, and word got around the, the prison that that had happened. And Eric sends an email to his wife, basically saying like, you know, one for our team. Um, you know, I hope that the suffering of all of the prisoners, you know, was behind that punch or something to that effect. And after he sent that email, the special investigative services unit of the BOP that monitors all of the emails um, basically flagged it as a potential threat. Because from the BOP perspective, they don't want a bunch of cheerleaders within the prison population thinking it's a great thing to punch guards in the mouth, you know, or guards in the face. And so to try and clamp down on what could become, you know, a wave of violence in their, you know, belief system, um, they start monitoring anything that could be seen as like inciting um, or encouraging, um, you know, further prisoner on guard um, assaults. And so this SIS lieutenant uh, flags the email and basically contacts the other lieutenants in the um, FCI Englewood and says, hey, I'm going to bring Eric King down to interview him about this email he sent. I'm going to use one of the lieutenant offices for the interview. And he sends it to Lieutenant Wilcox and Lieutenant Comrade, these two other lieutenants. And um, then that lieutenant, Lieutenant Cordova, gets hung up, gets another job that he has to do. And he sends an email to the other two guys again and says, I'm going to be late um, if King gets there, just to have him sit and wait. And this Lieutenant Wilcox instead says, you know, something like, don't worry about it. I'll take care of King. Um, and, you know, one thing leads to another. There was a bunch of details that came out at the trial. But basically what Eric testifies to is, uh, you know, he walks himself from his prison cell down to the lieutenant's office. And at one point, Lieutenant Wilcox and Lieutenant Comrade come get him from where he's sitting outside. And as they are basically saying, like, King, come on, um, this other correctional officer comes walking nearby and that correctional officer asks the two lieutenants if they need any help. And Lieutenant Wilcox leans over his shoulder and kind of sneers at the CO and says something like, you don't want to see this. And then is like, okay, come on, King. And so when the two lieutenants enter the lieutenant's hallway, 
with King in the middle, sandwiched between the two of them, there's two ways they can go. They can either go to the left, which is to the actual lieutenant offices, or they can go to the right, which is where the storage closet is. And a lot of the inmates have heard about this storage unit, the storage area, as being where you are taken for an attitude adjustment, meaning it's out of range of cameras, it's out of range of witnesses, and it's where some of like the bully, you know, fighter type of uh, guards will take an inmate to check their attitude, basically to put them back in place with usually a physical beating. And so Eric gets led to the right and uh, is basically led into that storage closet. And I think at trial, you know, he basically testified on his own behalf. And one of the things that he said is, you know, he knew right away that nothing good ever happens to a prisoner in a storage unit with two lieutenants. Um, and sure enough, the lieutenant starts screaming and yelling at him and calling him all sorts of names and trying to provoke him, provoke Eric to get into a physical fight with him. And this, this lieutenant is like 220 pounds. He's a professional, you know, he was a um, amateur wrestler, you know, in high school and college. He's a big, thick guy. And he's got this second um, lieutenant with him, you know, with all their tools, you know, their mace, their handcuffs, all the things. And so Eric was basically trying to use humor to de-escalate the situation. And he's saying things like, hey, boys, you know, I'm not going to do this. There's two of you and one of me. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to take this bait. Like, I'm not doing this. And the one lieutenant, Lieutenant Wilcox, then says to the other lieutenant, beat it. Get out of here. Because he basically interpreted Eric's, you know, there's two of you and one of me to mean like, well, if it's one-on-one, -on -one, then we can have a fight. And so the you know, first lieutenant excuses the second lieutenant from the space. And now it's just the two of them left in there. And Lieutenant Wilcox punched Eric twice in the face. And you know, Eric was, you know, has been trained most of his life as a boxer. He has, you know, very technical athletic boxing skills. And so once he took the first hit, he was able to kind of brace himself for the second punch. But when the second punch happened, um, you know, he basically started to lose consciousness and he really feared for his life. And so before the third punch was delivered by Lieutenant Wilcox, um, Eric delivered a left right punch straight to the nose, basically, because, you know, he's not a big guy at all, but he had precision, um, you know, and that training to his benefit where he was able to just make a couple of quick uh, punches straight to the nose. And basically the guy's nose started bleeding. You know, it ended up that the nose ended up being broken. And then when the Lieutenant kind of seemed to be lunging toward Eric, Eric did a third punch and basically the Lieutenant started to like lose consciousness. You know, from that point, 
all hell kind of breaks loose. And a lot of this didn't really come out in the trial because it was excluded. But basically, like as Wilcox kind of goes down on one knee, he is able to like hit his duty belt, which sends out like an all staff alert. And so at that point, all sorts of BOP, the BOP guard team starts showing up. And here is little Eric King in a closet by himself with this big dude who's bleeding profusely from the nose. And Eric immediately starts saying, he punched me first, he punched me twice. I swear I acted in self-defense. You know, from his perspective, it was super important for these guards to understand that this was not just like him taking a sucker punch at this guard, that this guard had taken him to this closet and had punched him first, and he only punched in self-defense. But it didn't really matter because the guard team was going to exact their revenge on him no matter what had actually transpired. And so two main themes unfold from there. One is that they physically beat the ever-loving out of Eric. They use excessive force that goes on for hours and hours and hours. And the second thing is that nobody within the BOP was going to document any statements made by Eric um, that he was assaulted first, nor were they ever gonna document his injuries like his black eye that he received from the lieutenant punching him in the face first, because that would cut against the cover-up that they were all going to have the back of Lieutenant Wilcox and they were going to be on team guard and they were not going to do anything that was going to trigger any kind of investigation of Wilcox. You know, most people have heard of like the blue wall of silence, when it comes to cops and that wall of silence is equal or more true for these prison guards. You know, and I think like the big distinction between today, you know, at least today with cops versus prison guards is cops. Now we have all these citizen videographers, we have badge cameras, you know, we have ways where accountability has been thrust upon them by no part of their own. You know, it just so happens that now everybody with a cell phone can potentially obtain evidence of police brutality and police misconduct on the outside world. That is impossible within the walls of the prison. Like not only does no inmate have access to a camera or a cell phone, et cetera, et cetera, but the guards are the people that know where the security cameras are located. Um, they know, you know where to take a prisoner in order to be off camera. And then even if a fellow guard witnesses something, they all very much know and understand that you don't snitch on your own, that you're going to have the back of your fellow correctional officer, despite whether you inherently you know, hold ethics of right or wrong or not. You know, if, if a guard were to turn on one of their own guards and be a witness or make allegations of staff assault on a prisoner or anything like that, that person's career is likely over because it would be so incredibly dangerous for that guard to continue to work within the prison because all the other guards would turn against them. They would potentially like set up 
prisoners to assault them, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's just, it's such a broken, broken system that is just so ripe for corruption and abuse, you know, and this scenario is a classic textbook example of how all of those parts were exacted against this individual. This has been KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. And if you want to financially support our work, you can become a supporter at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. Please check out our new searchable website with hundreds of archived shows at kitelineradio.org. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.